Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. My guest is Nicole Holifcenter. She and I talked last year. She's a writer and director. She makes quiet films, sometimes sad, melancholic. Her protagonists are usually female, almost always complex and flawed. And if you haven't seen her work before, it is brilliant. She was profiled recently in The New Yorker, and I think this line sums up her work pretty well. Often, movies are about people confronting extraordinary problems and overcoming them. Holof Center's films tend to be about people confronting ordinary circumstances and falling short because they're afraid of getting hurt or of getting old or simply of changing. She's worked with some truly great actors, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini in Enough Said, Catherine Keener and Frances McDormand in Friends with Money. Her latest film is called The Land of Steady Habits. It's based on the novel by Ted Thompson. It centers on a guy named Anders. He's middle-aged, retired from finance. He's played by the actor Ben Mendelsohn. Anders is going through kind of a late midlife crisis. He just left his wife, played by Edie Falco, but they still live in the same fancy part of Connecticut. He's worried about his adult son. He's doing drugs, and he's just having trouble figuring out where he fits in these days. Like in this scene from early on in the film, Anders is getting a drink with his friend Larry, another divorcee. Anders is having regrets. His family has moved on a lot easier than he thought they would after he left. And as we're about to hear, Larry is trying to comfort him. I used to have this vision of my life it was like a web. And these threads that connected me, you know. Yeah. And the, the more webs you could have coming from you, then the more important you were. Right? Like, so if you're a doctor, you cure a bunch of people. Patients. Then... Or a teacher, you got a million threads, you know? And and you would be basically irreplaceable, right? Because so many people depended on you, right? You understand yeah. what I'm saying? It's webs and Yeah, but it's really not the case. Come on now. No, it's the web. The web is 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 remaking itself, revising itself every second of every day. And so if you vanish, then the people that were in your life, they learn to rely on someone else. You know, and and you're gone. And then the web just remakes itself and moves on without you. Nicole Hollis, and I'm so uh, glad to have you back on Bulls. I thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, is this movie's kind of about dudes? Yeah, I, I guess they they're male. I mean, there's look, there's central female characters in the story as well, but. Uh, there's a father and two sons who are really the the heart of this movie, and I wonder if you had to like choose that you could make a movie about dudes because I don't know if you know this, there are a lot of movies about dudes already. <laughs> no, I thought we needed one more <laughs> because there is such a shortage. I know a dude's having a midlife crisis too, right? Yeah, finally, how original. Um, but I love the story so much, and the fact that it has dudes was nice. Um, I like men, and um, I know they have feelings too, and um, have legitimate problems. And I loved the characters and the problems they had. 
So there you go, guys. Was it something where, um, like, I sincerely don't believe you have a special responsibility to chronicle the lives of women? Thank you. Uh, Nor do I. Okay. Uh, So let's stipulate to that. Mm -hmm. But did you have to think about it for a second and say, okay, this is this is going to be about dudes. All my all my other movies were mostly, not exclusively, but mostly about women. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's okay for me to make a movie about dudes. I've made a lot of movies, and it's not my job to fix Hollywood. <laughs> no, nor can I, unfortunately. No, I mean I was wondering why you hadn't so far. <laughs> yeah, I'm tr- I, w- I was trying. I gave up. <laughs> I just go where my heart follows. I am not making political statements with my movies, certainly not with this one. You know, in the political climate that is right now, this is not the movie that, you know, someone should be making. Yet, why not? This is a beautiful story, I think. And um, there's room for that, no matter the gender. How is it different for you to direct? You direct a lot of television, including some of my favorite television um, you directed some of my favorite Bored to Deaths, for example, which is one of my favorite shows ever. The Case of the Stolen Sperm? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good one. Um, uh, how is it different for you as someone who has, for the most part, written the movies that you direct? Like it's this big, intense five-year process for you to get a movie into theaters um, because you know, you're making s- small to medium-scale movies, writing them yourself. Um, you know, presumably working on producing them as well, um, and so on and so forth. Like it's this big deal. Whereas when you're directing television, you're you're just like there for a little while, on where everyone else knows each other. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, it can be really uncomfortable, like uh, being the new kid at school each time. You but know? the new kid at school isn't in charge. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's true. That's what's weird about it. <laughs> that's true. You have to listen to me and you don't know me. And I'm on your turf. There's only been a couple of times where I felt really uncomfortable. And that played out exactly as you said. Like, it just was kind of torturous. Where I think the actors were sick of visiting directors, sick of being directed by people who didn't, you know, aren't there all the time. Um, or it's an unhappy set. But generally, I I felt really welcomed and actors wanted to be directed by me. So, phew. Do you think that your skill set is suited to what a television director does? I think a certain kind of television director, certainly certain kind of shows. I wouldn't know what to do with a three-camera show, you know, in that, like a sitcom or anything. Um, I'd be lost. But the shows that I direct feel like little movies or if they don't, you know, I just direct them as if I was directing a movie. Um, I don't see any difference. Except that I have to please the writer and the producer. And since I work on shows that I really like or love, then I feel honored to do that. So it's good. It, does it come easily to you? I mean, as someone who has successfully directed many films where you are, you know, in a film, that director is the be all end all at least you know (laughs) i am (laughs) yeah totally okay yeah for sure um is that wait what your question is the fact that you're that you're oh does it come easily to me doing this job and you're doing it for to please someone else ultimately right like you have artistic input as well but 
you have to do it the way that they like it. And mm-hmm. In some ways, you have to, you know, you have to match the way other people have done it to some extent, and so on and so forth. Yeah. In fact, I try to. You know, I don't feel like I have to reinvent this show with my vision. I feel respectful of what's already come before, and I do want to have my voice in there, a little stamp in there, but. Yeah, I want it to be kind of seamless, not notice like, oh, that actor is finally good or that actor is finally bad. People compliment me on my specific episodes and um, I don't feel really right to take credit. I feel like I – can I curse on this show? Well, I will bleep it out. I didn't f- it up. You know, if I don't screw it up, then I've done my job. You know, I, if I did a good job, that's even better. But um, yeah. Uh, it's you know it's different to want to please somebody else yes but and so it's more like a job in that respect like i can't overrule anybody's taste i can't always rely on my own taste um but so far people have wanted my taste they've wanted they've trusted me enough mostly to do it and you know it's a it's a great job i make good money um in residuals and meet actors I would never meet or DPs that I might want to work with. You know, it's uh, it's better than sitting, you know, in my house writing forever. Do you find yourself when you're working on television doing more asking rather than telling? I mean, I think I presume that when you're on a movie, especially when you've written it, and someone says, I don't, I'm not sure what this is, you're the one who knows. I should. Right? <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Sometimes I don't. But, right, on a TV show um, – yeah, I might say, so how would you react in this? You know, and what com- what came right before this? Or what about this character should I be aware of? Yeah. Um, and then I tell them. <laughs> <laughs> Have to tell at some point. I, I think there are a lot of directors who, you know, one of the reasons that they became directors, other than, you know... The power. Well, they, yeah. I mean, what, it's not not necessarily... Because they desired power, but because they were comfortable wielding it. Um, like, I think that one of the reasons that people with social privilege are disproportionately represented in the ranks of directors is because they don't question their... Their entitlement? Yeah. Basically? <laughs> yeah, totally. Is that what you were going to say? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, yeah, well, we we'll go back to privilege maybe, but mm-hmm. uh, privilege and entitlement often go hand in hand, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said the straight white dude? <laughs> <laughs> to the straight white woman. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, um, I think that, uh, yeah, I didn't, I'm more comfortable directing than I am sitting right here, not right now, talking to you. I'm more nervous right now imagining that this is going to be on the airwaves and the sound of my voice and all that crap. Um, But when I'm directing, of course I get nervous and of course I make mistakes, but it really feels like I'm in the right place. I'm utilizing all of the creativity that I have that I want to express. It sounds corny, but it's true. Did you feel that way when you were young? I mean, you spent time on movie sets as a kid because your stepfather was uh, and uh, a legendary producer, um, did you look at that and think this is something I want or something I could do when you were a teenager or whatever? Um, no. On the film sets that I was on as a little kid and then later as a production assistant, I was nowhere near the director or the action. 
And I didn't know what was going on. You know, I'd see some the director whisper into an actor's ear, and I couldn't imagine what brilliant advice he was giving her. Um, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> now I know. It's like sit to the left. <laughs> sit up straight. Um, so I didn't know what really directing was, or it, it didn't occur to me that I could do that at all. So how did you come to believe that you could? Because I think at some point you have to believe that you could in order to actually do it, right? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I wonder what made me think I could do it. Um, I directed a short at NYU that um, was probably one of the worst times in my life. I, I mean, making the movie. I was so in over my head that I, I literally wished I would get hit by a car. Um, I was so anxious. I was really like one of the first times I felt serious anxiety. And then my producer, who was in over his head, was throwing up in the bathroom. And the movie <laughs> cost too much money and took forever. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'll be a writer. And then I started writing a bunch and went to Columbia Grad School for writing. <sighs> See? But they make you um, uh, direct videos. And so when I was directing the videos, I thought, okay, I'm better at this now. I, I like this. And they turned out well, so I thought, okay, I'm going to try directing again. We'll continue my conversation with Nicole Hall of Center after a quick break. She'll tell me why she isn't really interested in making movies about people who are likable. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Babbel. Have you always wanted to speak a new language? Whether it's for travel, work, or brain training, Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons will get you speaking confidently in your new language. Choose from Spanish, French, and more. You'll learn through real-life dialogue, speech recognition, and interactive trainers. And Babbel's spaced repetition method actually makes you remember what you've learned. Download the app or go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com to try Babbel for free. Amazon, Google, Facebook. Big companies are getting really big. Is that a problem? Listen to Planet Money's new series on big business, competition, and antitrust law in America. That's on Planet Money. <sighs> There's nothing quite like sailing in the calm international waters on my ship, the SS Biopic. Avast! It's actually pronounced biopic. No, you dingus! It's biopic! Who the hell says that? It's biopic. Because it's the, the words word bi- for biography biology. and picture. If you... All right, that is enough. Ahoy, I'm Dave Holmes. I'm the host of the newly rebooted podcast, formerly known as International Waters, designed to resolve petty but persistent arguments like this. How? By pitting two teams of opinionated comedians against each other with trivia and improv games, of course. Winner takes home the right to be right. What podcast be this? It's called Troubled Waters, where we disagree to disagree. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Right now, we're listening to my 2018 conversation with Nicole Holoff Center. She's a writer and director. Some of her films include Friends with Money and Enough Said. She's also worked on TV shows like Parks and Recreation, Orange is the New Black, and Sex and the City. Her latest work is a film called The Land of Steady Habits, out now on Netflix. You grew up in New York and partly in Los Angeles. Yes. And you moved from one to the other when you were like 12. Exactly. I cannot imagine a time in my life when I would less like to have a disjuncture that big. Yeah. 
That was rough. Um, was my choice. Although, at the time, I was in with a bunch of mean girls um, when I was 12 in New York City. And I seemed to be drawn to mean girls. I was when I was younger. Were you cool? No, I, I, I think, think I guess I... think you were if you were with the mean girls. I That's the cool I think I was kids. a little cool. And then they realized how vulnerable I was. Then they realized what a target I was. And... Um, and so uh, they were funny, you know. Mean girls are funny and smart, and I was drawn to that. And then until they turn on me, um, then they're not. And when I was leaving New York, that was sort of happening, and I was looking forward to getting away from these girls. Um, but moving away from my dad at the time was really hard. He lived in you know near the city, and of course I you know was drawn to more mean girls. And then I got bullied in my new school. And eventually I found some real good friends. But, yeah, I had long hair down to here. I had zits, you know. I didn't wear a bra. It was like New York in the in the 60s or 70s. Um, completely different than the Los Angeles girls. And I tried to be one. What was it like when you got to Los Angeles? I had to take the bus, which was really weird. I was used to the subway. And walk to a bus, which was very strange. And... Um, I didn't. I felt like I didn't fit in um, until I started buying the clothes everybody else was. And then before I knew it, I was. I was. I fit in. I don't know. I just did. And I like. We got to have a dog and um, a completely different lifestyle. You know, New York was pretty rough in the early seventies and sixties, and I was exposed to a lot of stuff. Um, I got you know flashed a bunch of times when I was a kid in New York, and then. I came to L.A. and I was on the bus and some guy was doing it. And I'm like, but I'm in L.A. (laughs) (laughs) What, do they follow me here? (laughs) Don't they see the palm palm trees? (laughs) Exactly. I thought, yeah, I thought only the perverts only lived in New York. But alas, they're everywhere. That sucks. It does. And all of us, all my friends, we were all aware of it. So we joke about it and try to act tough about it. But it was scarring. Did you have to be tough about stuff in general did you have to have that kind of toughness just walking around that kind of like eyes up you know what i'm talking about absolutely especially in new york i mean i took the subway when i was like eight with my my sister and um so we were hyper aware and vigilant and acted tough until you know we got threatened um and then you know we were puddles of tears um but i I think I still act tough. I think people think I'm tough, and I'm so not tough. I uh, My feelings get hurt just like everyone else's, um, or more, I like to think, <laughs> or it feels like I do. Um, but that I have a kind of gruff, blunt um, exterior that doesn't really – well, you know, it is a part of me, but so is the other. Do you think that's partly because um, – Show business is very unforgiving, and if you are a sensitive person, you'd better have a gruff, blunt exterior because otherwise the, you're going to die from all the people telling you exactly what's wrong with the things that you created that are most important to you. I know. No, that's where I turn into a puddle of tears. But, um, yeah, this is a very tough competitive business. I've had, you know, been destroyed emotionally a million times, and um, and I'm one of the lucky ones, so – just imagine. And also, it's just part of my personality. I think it's part of my humor is that I can be kind of blunt and outspoken and it makes me seem like I'm a tough girl. Um, 
and then I find out I'm hurting someone's feelings and I'm not so tough. I'm just an idiot. Is there a time that you can tell me of a time that you regretted something that you were being having a tough girl blunt outspokenness about? I was probably telling somebody that I didn't know that they had bad breath. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'd want someone to tell me. Or, you know, I've accused someone I barely know. Like, did you fart? And um, because I just, I like... I like talking about things that we all know about but don't talk about. I have that kind of thrill. And I'm sure I've offended people, especially with the breath thing. I mean, that's like a big part of your movies. Not bad breath specifically. Although there is some chewing sounds talk in in the new movie. There isn't. Bad breath in um, Friends with Money. Yeah. There I go. Yeah. But it's obvious that you get such a kick out of airing something that is supposed to be an intimate secret. Right. Yeah, I mean, so much of Friends with Money was about that for me. It was it was exciting in that way. I like to ask, if I'm sitting with a close friend and they're talking about a good job they just got, I might say, oh, how much are you making? And to l- see the look on their face. Um, like, is it safe to tell you what will you think of me? And I often just tell someone what I'm making because I know they want to know. And I'm either thrilled or ashamed or embarrassed, but that's what it is. Um, Yeah, I I don't think – I think people have too many secrets. People are too ashamed in general, including myself. This movie, uh, uh, The Land of Steady Habits, is about substantially parents' relationships with their children. Mm -hmm. I found that it terrified me. As it should. (laughs) Yeah, I understand. Terrifies me, too. Was that part of what resonated with you when you read the novel, the kind of terror of not knowing what your children would be and not being able to control it? Uh, I think so. Yeah, consciously or unconsciously. That's. I mean, I worry about my 20-year-old twin boys all the time. Um, And it's a real lesson to let them be who they are and to try not to worry and to stay out of their hair um, you know, the drug years are really scary, um, whether they did drugs or not. You know, you're just in terror. Um, and they lie and do all the normal things. Um, but these characters, I guess, were kind of um, a mother's worst fear, one more than another. But, um, you know, Preston's character is really like he goes to Northwestern and then he lays on the couch. I mean, that's that's a really scary prospect. Let's hear another clip from my guest, Nicole Holofcener's new film, which is called The Land of Steady Habits. Anders is the protagonist of the film, and in this scene, he's hanging out with Charlie, who's the teenage son of some family friends. They're both getting high, and Charlie just talked about how he doesn't understand his dad. Anders starts talking about his own son, Preston. You know why? Because when he was a kid, he had this big, floppy bear. It was like a big saggy air and he carried it everywhere and I mean everywhere and he held on to that thing he held on to that thing way too long way past the time when anyone was supposed to be hanging on to a bear you know so we took it off and, and we hit it and we pretended that it was lost because we were I don't know we were worried about him being teased or that he wouldn't grow up or some bull. I don't know. I mean, 
Oh God, he was so betrayed. We betrayed him. He was devastated. He was heartbroken. What a stupid thing to be a parent. It's sad. Yeah. Yeah. That Ted Thompson, he's a good novelist. And Ben Mendelsohn, good actor. You're actually a very good uh, writer and director. Thank you. In my opinion. <laughs> Thanks. Have you ever retrospectively thought, wow, I failed my child in a way that I did not realize at the time? Um, I, mean, sure. I don't think anyone fails their children on purpose. No, of course not. I'm sure. And I'll find out more. <laughs> as they get older and angrier and we start having therapy sessions together, um, certainly I will learn more. And um, I have to accept that. You know, I, I want to be a perfect parent. I never want to hurt my kids. And to find out, you know, you who are supposed to protect your child has hurt, hurt them is just a um, really horrible feeling. But we all make mistakes. And, that you know, I've made some, I'm sure. Do you worry about whether you're doing the right thing as much as the characters in your movies do? Oh, gee. Um, yeah. I suppose I, I, I am aware. I worry if I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Right? Not, not as much. I mean, you know, the character that Ben Mendelsohn plays, you know, he makes a lot of mistakes. He's not doing the right thing. I'm not drawn to those kind of mistakes, thankfully. I think I have a better head on my shoulders, but that doesn't keep me from, you know, being insecure about how I behaved somewhere, or what I said, or what I'm saying right now. <laughs> <laughs> Whose feelings am I going to hurt or whatever? Yeah. Your movies have such sympathy for people who are making mistakes. There isn't anybody in your movies who isn't making mistakes for the most part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like there's no, uh, you know, there's not a lot of Herculeses in your movies. No, there aren't. I can think of Simon McBurney in Friends with Money. He was a pretty good guy and um, being torn apart by his wife who had a lot of problems. But he kind of shows himself, I think, to be a... a um, well-rounded, healthy person. Are you, like, constantly making a list in your head of uh, Catherine Keener's and Edie Falco's and James Gandolfini's? Julia Louis-Dreyfus. These people yeah. that uh, can, do, can do jerky, mean little things and you still just want to give them a hug. Yeah, and a lead in a movie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what land, the Land of Steady Habits, you know. Ben Mendelsohn plays this kind of somewhat reprehensible person, really selfish, narcissistic, insecure, ashamed, lonely person who makes bad mistakes. And, you know, when I was casting the movie or thinking about who I wanted, I felt like he had all of that in his face. He could have all of that in his face. He's such a good actor. And and also it's, you know, sometimes it's the way someone talks or it's literally the shape of their face, you know. Like Catherine, um, I don't know, everything she says and does makes it more interesting to me than most actors. So um, She's really funny. Like yeah. can really nail a joke. She kind of has a little bit of sad eyes. Yes, absolutely. 
And so everything is colored a little bit by the sad eyes. Which I love. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you cast her in the proper thing, that's fantastic. But that's what makes her deep. And same with Ben. Ben has sad eyes. Look at those eyes. I mean, he yeah, he just draws you in. And I hope that, you know, people, they don't have to love him or like him, but as long as you're immersed in his growth or his story and entertained by it, great. I was thinking when I watched the movie Mission Impossible yes, that Tom Cruise, and I may be about to uh, mess up my chances of ever having time. Tom Cruise, if you're listening to this right now, you're more than welcome to come on this program. I'd be fascinated to talk with you. He's not listening. You don't seem like a real human being. <laughs> uh, but I know you are. I know you must be because I believe all people are. Yes. Um, but like it, Tom Cruise in that movie, like he's superhuman, right? I, you're, I've never and, seen okay, one. Okay, so you, know. you should watch it. It's a totally great movie. Yeah. Um, but he's superhuman in it. And he's absolutely credible as superhuman because of his astonishing and apparent certitude. Like the conviction – and it, he must just be like this because it, like he must know how to enhance it for the screen. But like he must have some – this must be a real quality of his. Well, we've seen it I think in interviews. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. When, when people have laughed at him for seeming unhinged, it is for that exact same reason. Right? The, the couch. Yeah. Yeah. And um, that is like one quality of movie stardom, which is you can credibly be anything like beyond the world, Uh like anything in the world. I feel like the other quality of movie stardom is if you can be a jerk and we believe (laughs) that you are doing your best. Yeah. Uh And And like you for that. Right. Doing your best. That's that counts for a lot. It does. I I I, I don't have any elaboration on that. Have you ever seen the show Always Sunny? In, it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I love that show. So it's yeah, I love it too. I'm amazed that it's still so great. Thirteen years in, or however long they've been making it. I really want to work with Caitlin Olson. So bad. She's amazing. She's, she's so brilliant. she's so brilliant, hilarious in that show. Yeah. And um, I was thinking, like, why do I like these characters who are? Monsters in ev- literally every way, and idiots. Yes. They're both idiots and monsters. They're not just amoral; they're ba- immoral almost always. And they think they're terrific people. And they think they're terrific people. They're completely deluded. <laughs> like, and I was like, okay, well, number one, they're friends, and I like things about friends. <laughs> and number two, they're doing their best. Right. Actually, they don't think they're good people. They know they're bad people, but they're doing their best at. Being themselves. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Getting what they want. No, it's relentlessly funny, and they're all, you know, reprehensible. Yeah, love it. Like when I, I remember watching um, Friends with Money, mm-hmm. being mad at every character in the movie. No. Like, <laughs> Really? Yes. In a, so, bad, in a bad way. Uh, no, 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 not in a bad way. Uh-huh. I actually really like your movies, as I've said a bunch of times so far. <laughs> um you're one of my all-time faves. Thank you. Nicole. But like watching and being mad. At, at these jerks. At all these jerks, right? But still really caring about them, wanting happiness for them, mm-hmm. and like believing in them in a weird way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that is not a common thing in film. Maybe you get one person like that in a movie. You know, you get one Catherine Keener. 
Mm-hmm. You tend to make com- construct movies out of those people. <laughs> yeah, I guess they're all, you know, people inside of me and my life, you know, people in my life. And it's just not interesting to make easygoing, likable people. Um, I mean, even the dude, you know, easygoing, likable person. But boy, does he up. But he's <laughs> But he's doing his best. <laughs> um, yeah, that's just what's interesting to me. Um, I like to see movies about, you know, if it's not going to be conflict like, um, you know, finding the buried treasure, it better be conflict within somebody's soul. Nicole Hoff Center, I'm so grateful to you for coming back on the show and uh, for your movies as well. I just admire them so much. Thank you so much. That makes me happy. (laughs) Nicole Hall of Center, one of my all-time faves. The Land of Steady Habits is streaming now on Netflix. You can watch it. And hey, here's a hot tip. If you didn't see Enough Said, like, I think it was one of the most lovely and moving and hilarious romantic comedies of the last 10 or 20 years. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org, world headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where just yesterday there was a crane so huge that it stretched far beyond our ninth floor window. We think it was lifting elevator parts into our building. I mean, it was truly gargantuan. I cannot overstate how huge this crane was or how weird it was to see it power up in front of our, you know, in front of our big picture windows. (laughs) The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Shana Deloria. Our interstitial music, the music you are hearing right now and in between segments and so forth, comes from DJW, a.k.a. the great Dan Wally, the world's handsomest record collector. Thanks for sharing it with us, Dan. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by the band The Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries provided it to us. Our thanks go to both of them. And before you go... I have been making this show for over 15 years, coming up on 20 years since I was in college, and I have interviewed so many hundreds of people, uh, and almost every single episode that we have ever recorded is archived on our website at MaximumFun.org. You can also find our recent interviews on YouTube, where they are easy to play and share. Everybody knows how to watch a video on YouTube, right? Uh, You can also find them on Facebook. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Bullseye. Uh, or just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You will find all of those things and uh, plenty of stuff to listen to. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.